Well, there was nothing particularly out of the ordinary uh, of this house. It was a, if you drove by, it was just a typical ranch-style house that you see dotted all over the Midwest. It had vinyl siding, and there was a little bit of a brick facade that was creeping its way up from the bottom to give the house a little bit of character. There was nothing really impressive about the outside. It was had a small garage, two spark parking spaces, and a, a, a portable basketball hoop out out in front for for the kids. If you went on the inside, there was really nothing impressive about that either. Just a normal living room as you'd enter. There was a bathroom off to the left, a couple of bedrooms to either side of that. The kitchen had a really nice island where you could serve people from. Uh, so that was great, but it was a pretty normal kitchen. But there was really there was something really special about this house that that I imagine sold my friends when they first saw it. Right off the kitchen, there was this large square room with a kind of a sort of vaulted ceiling and, and a fireplace that sat right in the middle, perfect for hosting a lot of people. And host a lot of people, it did. Uh, Rob and Michelle were the leaders of a, the campus ministry that I was a part of in college called The Navigators. Uh, Ministry that started during World War II in the in the military, and really championed and prized scripture memory. Well, we met in this brand new facility at the college campus. It was it was a uh, uh, actually a skybox, a multi-purpose room that overlooked the f- football field, but it was a state-of-the-art room with all the tech that you'd need to to host some of your best events. Um, and we had a meaningful time there, but some of my best, most cherished memories happened in that large square room. I can still remember the laughter bouncing off of the walls from all of the crazy and stupid things that college kids would do, especially the guys. I remember the conversations that were taking place there, conversations that would move into friendships. Some of them would move into relationships and even marriages and, and, and families. Life happened in, those, in, that, in that room. A lot of life happened in that room. Uh, when we met in that fancy room on the college campus that had a, a view to boast, uh, we were a part of the program there. A good and meaningful program. It was the program. When we met in that large square room where laughter and conversations were happening, where Rob and Michelle's kids were running around, where, where food was being prepared and, and food was being eaten, we were part of the family. We were part of the family. Maybe you have had an experience like that at some time in your life. Um, Maybe you've had that kind of experience too. Where have some of the deepest conversations in your life, where have those taken place? Uh, those, those conversations when you chewed on some life-changing concept with somebody or, or you made a confession to somebody that you have never made in your life before. Or you cried on a shoulder of a friend who reached out their arm and embraced you. Where did some of those conversations happen? 
Chances are, even if you can't think of experiences like those, that's something that you have longed for at one time in your life or another. Even as you've maybe watched one of your favorite shows and you've seen a shadow of what community can look like. Even for you introverts, or us, I should say, introverts out there, I know you're out there, I see you, you can't hide that well. Even for those of you who are introverts, you may run away from the crowds, but you long for that, you long for that life-giving touch of community that is cultivated by hospitality. If hospitality like that can be so life-giving, why does it seem so rare? Why does it seem so rare? Well, as I was thinking about this for a little bit, it felt odd at first, but, but then it started to make sense. This is something that we've talked about before, but, but people are, are prone, studies have shown that people are prone to protect what they have as opposed to taking small chances for bigger gains. Who would want to risk, who would want to risk making an acquaintance, somebody that you know on a, on a shallow level, into, into something, something even worse? What if I say something stupid? What if I can't handle the small talk? What if I burn the lasagna? What if one of my kids disobeys? Uh, chances are one of the bigger questions behind all of those questions is what if they don't like me? What if they don't like me? Uh, the fear of getting or suspecting, even suspecting a no answer is enough to hold back. Could one of the reasons that hospitality is so rare be the barrier of insecurity? The barrier of insecurity. Well, genuine hospitality, it allows us to, to, to give and experience life. When we experience the real deal, we become better parents. We become better co-workers. We become better friends, better classmates. We, we, become, we become better people when we're in contexts like that because, because hospitality provides the most personal and and meaningful context to grow as people. If healthy relationships are critical to life, and if hospitality is one of the best vehicles to achieve those healthy, those healthy relationships, and hospitality is not just something to strive for. The insecurity that keeps us from it is, is something that's worth beating. How can we overcome insecurity to engage in life-giving hospitality. How can we do that? Well, that's the question that I want to answer with you today. And it just so happens that one of the scenes of Jesus' life sheds some light on this subject that's going to give us some clarity and some direction for where to go. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14, and we're just going to look at three verses in the Gospel of Luke, verses 12 through 14. That's where we're going to spend our time, but we really need to take a step back and set the table, so to speak. Pun intended, as you'll see in a minute, because 
Because this scene, the context is really important to getting a feel and understanding exactly what Jesus is, is saying here. Well, things out start with an invitation to Jesus. And it's not just an invitation from anybody. It's an invitation from one of the most prominent Pharisees in the town. Well, 2,000 years of context, we might look back at that and we might say, Ooh, Pharisee. Those are the bad guys, right? Well, the truth is, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, There were good Pharisees like Nicodemus and the things that the Pharisees believed lined up in a lot of ways with the things that Jesus believed. Now, there was a lot of tension with the Pharisees as a group and Jesus uh, because of a lot of the criticisms that he had of the Pharisees. So there was definitely a lot of angst, and we need to remember that as we step into this, this story. Well, Luke also says an important note that, that Jesus is going to this, he's attending this invitation on the Sabbath. Well, tensions have heightened all of a sudden because the Sabbath was the Jewish holy day when they weren't supposed to work. And a lot of the criticism that the Pharisees had of Jesus was that they believed that he was violating Sabbath laws by doing good deeds on the Sabbath. So it started a pretty tense conversation. So by this point in the story, we're already aware of that. So even as we're ready to get into this story, as Luke is bringing us in, tensions have risen a little bit For the readers, because we're like, well, what's going to happen next? As Jesus entered this Pharisee's home, he would have uh, sat at a table. In those days, they sat on three sides of the table. But it wasn't exactly sitting, like what we consider sitting today. It was really more reclining. Uh, It might be a little bit hard for us to picture, but uh, they didn't have four-legged chairs. They had kind of couches. This was common throughout the whole ancient world. And they would lean forward on those couches, usually with their left hand. They would, you know, brace their heads like this. They would use their right hand and they would reach over to the table and grab food and grab drink and they would engage in this way. You know, ironically enough, it wasn't until a few hundred years later that a group of people called the barbarians would come and take over Rome and introduce the type of sitting, a more civilized kind of type type of seating that we are used to today. This is how they sat at a table, and this is how they met, and this is how they ate all over the ancient world at this time. And for those of you who are Bible scholars here, this helps us to make sense of things like when Jesus, uh, when, when the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, rested on the chest of Jesus. Well, that seems weird sitting in a chair. Well, he just leaned his head back. Simple as that. How did Jesus wash the feet of the disciples when they were at the table of the Last Supper? Did he crawl under the table? No, he just went around. So it makes sense of a lot of things. But this also makes sense of a practice back then, that, that people of different social classes, they did not eat with one another. They didn't eat with one another. And the reason, and why this is important, why we're talking about this in the first place, is because eating a meal together at a table in the ancient world was something that was very intimate. It invited a closeness. You experienced closeness with one another. You weren't just sitting down. You were lying down together in a way, engaged, sitting close with one another. And that's why people of different classes, they either ate in different rooms or they just didn't eat together at all. Well, after Jesus and uh, 
after Jesus arrived at the table, bread would have been served that had already been broken. And the reason this bread would have been already been broken is because it was the Sabbath. The work had to have been done the day before. So bread was delivered. And at that time, I, I imagine that Jesus maybe looked around the room and he noticed something different. He was the odd man out. Everybody else was dressed like a Pharisee or a teacher of the law. It turns out that this host, he just invited all of his friends to the party. But there was one more person there that was even more outstanding than Jesus, or should I say, stood out even more than Jesus. And it was a man who had dropsy. Dropsy is a symptom that produces swelling in the body. Now, that's pretty weird in a context like this because Pharisees, they did not sit down and have a meal with people who had physical bodily abnormalities. What's this guy doing here? Luke tells us that Jesus was being watched carefully. He doesn't tell us who was watching him carefully. So there's a little bit of mystery here. But Jesus was being watched carefully. I don't know if seafood was being served at that meal. But something had to smell fishy there. As the great Admiral Akbar once said, It's a trap! <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> Jesus sometimes dodges situations like these. But this time, he takes the bait. He heals this man, and then he asks a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus isn't done. He, he, he takes it a step further. And he says, would, would one of you, if your child fell in the well, would you, would you save him if it was on the Sabbath? What if one of your animals fell in a well? Would you save that person on the Sabbath? Now, this seems pretty hostile, and it's definitely a little bit uncomfortable. But, but I have a hunch the way the rest of the passage folds out that, that probably not everybody was against Jesus in that room. Luke tells us that the Pharisees, that the people, that the guests, they were silent. Well, maybe some of that silence was embarrassment. Maybe some of that silence was simply curiosity. If... if if they took that as a direct attack at this point, my hunch is that they would have asked him to leave. But he sticks around and tells a few more stories. So I don't think it's quite as hostile as it might have come off immediately. And I'm not sure that, that everybody was, was against him in that room. Well, what follows are three addresses that Jesus gives. And we're just going to really focus in on the second one. But by way of summary and for a little bit of context, the first address is given to the guests. Jesus noticed that when they finally sit down or recline down at the table, that there are some people who go right for the position of power next to the right and to the left of the host. This is the most prominent place at the table. And so he, he makes a little bit of commentary on that. He says, don't take the seat of, of prominence, but, but take the seat of least prominence, unless you're going to be embarrassed and the host asks you to go and sit down at a lower seat. That's his first address. Well, the last address, somebody at the meal says, oh, how great it's going to be to have a feast in the kingdom. How great it will be to have a feast in the kingdom. And then Jesus begins a parable, as he tends to do, and he, he talks about 
a man who invited many people to a feast, but everybody turned down his invitation because they were too busy. Oh, I just got married. Oh, I just bought a new animal. I got to take care of the new animal. So on and so forth. In the middle statement, Jesus turns to the host. Looks right at him. This is what he says. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. The kids have an expression for this when they, uh, kids, you know, what's kids, but when they uh, watch uh, modern awkward comedies that get laughs out of awkward moments, cringeworthy. Can you imagine hosting a party and bringing all your friends and then somebody shows up and said, hey, hey man, you're just, you just invited your friends so that they'll invite you back to their party. Yeah. So this is definitely a little bit un, it's a little bit uncomfortable in this situation. But it's maybe not as much of a direct rebuke as it as it first comes across. We want to remember the setting here. Remember the man with dropsy. After Jesus healed him, there's a chance that he is still in that room instead of saying, "Hey, look, you just invited all your friends here." What he's about to say next, he may have pointed to the man who was healed from dropsy as a, as a positive example of what he's about to say. And here's what he says. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now the word hospitality never appears in this passage. But hospitality is all over this passage, isn't it? But what does this have to do with insecurity? What does this have to do with insecurity? If Jesus is uncovering the host's motives, perhaps... He's showing that there is a kind of hospitality uh, that, that, the just, that is just put in place, that is just practiced to win points with friends. Guys, that famous rabbi is coming to town. You can come over, and you can come over. He's, he's coming to my house. I'll, I'll invite you over, and you over, and you over. Uh, not you, sorry. There is a kind of hospitality that is just designed to win points with friends. It's possible that this kind of hospitality was born out of insecurity and used to secure a more stable social status. Well, Jesus, as he does, flips the table on this story. And now what he's not saying is he's not saying never invite your friends or your family members over for dinner. He's not saying, look, sorry guys, you can't have grandma over for the Hanukkah festivities anymore. Sorry, not going to happen. No grandma. That's not what he's saying. I mean, it sounds that way on the surface, but Jesus often uses exaggeration to make a point. Like when he says, if you want to follow me, you must hate your mother and father. 
No, he's not saying that. He's using exaggeration here to, to make a point. But what he is saying is this. Do hospitality in a way that is not for personal gain. Do hospitality in a way that's not for personal gain. There's no better way, and there is no better way, via illustration, of doing that than engaging those of a social class or status that cannot return the favor. You have to have a lot of personal security to do something like that, don't you? You know, as easy as it sounds to reach out to somebody different, a different class or a different place of life as it is, it, it's hard to do that with, without having fears about what people will think. Especially with the Pharisees. I mean, they're certainly thinking, if I invite somebody of a low social class, what will my other Pharisee friends think of me for doing that? Don't miss Jesus' answer here. When we do hospitality in a way that there is no personal gain, God will repay. God will repay. This is what he says. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I don't know about you, but the, the topic that sometimes shows up in Jesus' teaching about rewards is, is actually kind of confusing to me. I don't have a, a really great answer for it at this time. If all of our desires are met in the life beyond, then what could possibly be added to that? Like, what kind of a heavenly recliner are, am I going to get in the afterlife that could be added to everything? Some people will say, hey, this is, a, this is an act of honor, or this is all about honor. Well, if it's all about honor, these rewards, then why doesn't it say so? I'm not here to provide answers on what these rewards are. It's still working through it. If you have the answers on that, that's great. Let's have coffee. Let's love to hear your thoughts on that. But if I, take a, if I try to put myself in the shoes of people in the ancient world during this time, and I also take a, a big step back, I think, we can, I think we can at least say, say this. Um, I think we can say that getting a reward from a prominent person, especially in a culture that put a premium on social, social capital, um, that would have been an experience of deep valuing. It wouldn't have just made you feel seen. It would have raised your social status. It would have raised your social status. If that occurred on a human level, how much greater would it have been on a divine level? There are other fascinating scriptures that, that sing a similar song to this passage. The gospel writer Matthew, uh, in, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his followers that whatsoever you do unto the least of my people, that you do unto me. The writer of the book of Hebrews, in perhaps what's one of the strangest statements in the New Testament, said that when you offer hospitality to strangers, you sometimes you do, do it for people have unknowingly entertained angels because of it. That's weird. <laughs> let's just call it what it is. But let's not get too distracted by the angel bit. 
Let's just take a step back from that as well to, to try to consider the big point of all of this. When we show hospitality to people without any expectation of return, we're serving a God who loves us, no matter who we are, no matter how messy our houses are, and no matter what silly things we say. We can overcome insecurity to engage in life-giving hospitality by embracing hospitality as a chance to serve the God whose love we don't have to earn. It's a chance to serve the God whose love we don't have to earn. When we shift our focus from how people will view us to how God already freely views us, it frees us from the fears that hold us back. And just when it might look like we are using people, we're using people so that we can deepen our own relationship with God, doing hospitality in this way, doing it in this special way, actually creates the space for us to value people on their own terms. Uh, even be surprised by people. When God has enabled us to re- remove remove impressing people as our agenda. Well, back in June, uh, I was slated to preach on hospitality. And uh, I had a, a conversation and we were planning on bringing up a friend of mine to further that conversation along. And for one reason or another, it didn't work out. But here we are, six months later, hospitality is back on the docket. So I'm going to invite up a, a person that many of you may know, some of you may not, Zach Ellis, who, who uh, Zach has been a member of Christ Church for several years now, and he is part of the partner program at Gordon-Conwell. Gordon-Conwell Seminary down in Massachusetts. And the partner program is training and equipping people in partnership with churches like us to to send out Christian counselors, which is a huge need in southern New Hampshire right now. I can speak from personal experiences. So what a blessing to invest in Zach and also invest in the future through that. Zach is also one of the ministry leaders at the Nathan Project, and he's taking on more responsibilities um, this year, which is exciting. Zach meets with young guys. He, he hosts groups and he does speaking engagements to encourage people on their journeys with sexual wholeness. So Zach, it's, <laughs> Zach is 32 years old. And uh, Zach, I, I've just has stood out to me as someone who is particularly good at connecting with people, but connecting with people in really every generation. And that's something that I've seen. And I said, Zach, let's let's have a let's have a conversation about that because uh, it's that's such a really positive model for us as a church. And some of you, I just I just want to get it out there. Some of you are thinking, who knows, Zach? You're thinking that, well, this guy, he is so outgoing that he makes extroverts want to crawl in a closet. But the truth is, as we had this conversation, as we've talked more about it, uh, uh, 
engaging people and connecting with people, that can be even hard for you. Uh, tell us about that. Surprisingly enough, yeah, it's not always my go-to to be in relationship with people, to be to be reaching out. And, and underneath that, there is most certainly uh, the fear of uh, being vulnerable at times. My way of hiding can be asking lots of questions and keeping the other person talking, which means that I don't have to reveal much of myself sometimes. And, and underneath that, there's often the fear of rejection. When you show up as yourself, presenting something that actually means something to you or a piece of you that really is who you are, that's always a vulnerable act because who knows how it's going to be received, acknowledged, or reflected back to you. So it oftentimes feels like that same, uh, same kind of effort of going to the gym where I know that it's good for me. There's always a little bit of initial resistance to make that first step. But then when I get there, I'm immediately reminded that there's all sorts of good things being in that space. And that muscle gets flexed a little bit more and gets a little bit stronger. And the next time, it's easier to do. Hmm. When I was in your season of life, I, I really appreciated... Uh... I appreciated connecting with people who were in my season of life because it felt like that I could be around people who understood me and and who who I could relate to. Uh, you've done a great job of of branching out to, uh, to even though you're 32 and single, you you meet with with 16 year old guys and 20 year old guys and and, and married couples who are in their 30s and. And couples in their 50s and 60s, uh, that's kind of become your practice. You have branched out. How do you keep coming back to that? Yeah, I think I'm keenly aware of my need for relationship, and I feel more whole inside of relationships, that's for sure. When I think of the variety of people that I've been blessed to spend time with and to get to know, even within our church, uh, John and Tony come immediately to mind as people who welcomed me into their home and had an ease about them in having, having experienced a lot of life and having stories to tell that spoke to, um, spoke to, I've been there, done that, but in a way that meant I could also be called into more, uh, more life alongside of them, um, and ease about spending time with them and, and sharing stories about life. And, and the same thing with the riddles. They, uh, they welcomed me into their home in a way that was very um, open and no pretense, no facade, just come and sit and enjoy and, and share life with us. Um, and then, you know, in the, in the slightly younger category, <laughs> maybe more in my peer group, um, <laughs> conversation a little bit, don't we? <laughs> um, there's the, uh, the Yorks and the Joneses and the Martins people that, you know, when I, when I get to spend people that are, that are more kind of in the immediate season of life that I'm in, there's a vulnerability in talking about similar experiences, getting to share what we're navigating through and asking questions about the here and now and kind of a sharing of wisdom and struggle and surprise that, uh, that keeps me on my toes. And I, I feel that solidarity and sameness and then with younger people, um, oh, and also with Phil and Stephanie Cody, and he invited me in, and all of a sudden we're sitting at the table and spoon carving. And uh, not only with his set of knives, but the next time I was over there, he had purchased a set of knives for me, for, for, my, for my own. And uh, I was like, wow, this is pretty wild. Um, 
And then in the younger, the youngest category, maybe I think of uh, time spent recently with Owen, and we ended up rock climbing, and there I was hanging off of a wall that he's already scaled three times ahead of me, and I'm wheezing my way up and laughing, and he's being patient with me, and it was just a joy in adventure, and and then being asked uh, really good questions from him that remind me of the need to be on my toes, considering what I believe and why, and and practicing an ability to share that with someone. Mm. Let's tell us a little bit about how you how you have felt your relationship, your understanding of God grow in the midst of all these relationships that you've had. I think relationships serve as a really powerful reflection. I get to see myself more clearly in relationship to another. And inevitably, every time, if I'm paying attention, if my eyes are open and my ears are open, the unseen is being made seen through those relationships, those things of God that I know, that I read in Scripture, that I hear. Um, it, is made, it is made more clear. It is brought to a higher resolution in the container of relationships. And, and I get to know uh, more about the God that I love and serve and, and see more of myself in the process. Hmm. Give him a round of applause. Yeah. Thank you, Zach. Who would have thought that you can do hospitality by inviting yourself over to someone's house and eating their food? <laughs> but you know what? That's exactly the thing that Jesus did. That's what, that's what Jesus did too. So what about you? Uh, are you going to let fears of what people think hold you back from doing something creative, building something and, and making something new? Or will you, will you take a risk? Will you take a risk knowing that even if you say something silly or if things get awkward, there is, a, there is a God who loves you whom you are pleasing? If you are ready to take that step, if you feel God tugging on your heart, then I have some just practical tips to help you put that into motion. Uh, back before I became a pastor and I was on the road to becoming a pastor, I, I, I uh, was in a, serving in a church where that had just gotten a new senior pastor. So I reached out to him for some coaching. And he said, yeah, great. Uh, come up with some questions and uh, we'll meet on such and such a date. So the night before, I stayed up late and I came to the table with 100 questions. We weren't going to run out of things to talk about that day. I didn't even have to look in my notes to remember uh, the answer to one of the questions that, that I had. I, I asked him about, how do you do hospitality as a busy pastor? And he said, well, and it was a pretty simple answer. He just said, we try to do things simply. And a big part of that was for his wife, who a lot of the burden of hospitality fell on his wife, and uh, she had to do the cooking. So uh, that relieved her from some of the pressure Hey, we're just going to do things simply. Come on over. It's not going to be a big affair. And it was a reminder it's important to talk to your, to your significant others in the midst of those conversations so that you can be on the same page. But, but I also took something else away from his answer. Sometimes it's, it's helpful to uh, set expectations. I think it's important to accept 
a little mess. Um, but don't be afraid to give people a, a heads up just to calm your nerves in that situation. Look, this is how we do life. It's, you know, the bathroom's probably not going to be completely clean. There's a, it's a little chaotic, but we still want you to be there anyways because, because food is important. <laughs> but it's not about the food. It's about the company. Uh, secondly, use hospitality to nurture the friendships that you already have. Many times in the Bible, hospitality is actually used to, with reference to people that we know. It's one of the first qualifications for leaders in the church. Hospitality is. Uh, and the church was to practice hospitality towards one another. It's good and wise to do life together, planned and unplanned, because we know that we'll benefit as, as relationships we trust deepen and grow. We know that we'll benefit, but there's also a side benefit. When we reach out to other people, we can bring them into a community that demonstrates and shows the love of Christ being fostered and, and growing in a healthy, beautiful way. But we shouldn't stop there. Yes, hospitality is for friends, but this passage calls us further. We should prayerfully take some risks. Prayerfully take some risks. It was a point of tension early on in, in our marriage. I was gung-ho about hospitality. We got to have that big room that I experienced in college. And, and, and I married a, a, a beautiful woman who who was great at connecting with people. So I was surprised that, that there was some hesitation early on about, about hospitality. And that's something that we kind of had to work through. We found a way to work through it. We aren't going to have people over every night of the week. We're going to be, <laughs> we're going to select specific times. There were people in our small group that I really had a heart for, single people especially, who can experience so much loneliness and a lack of connection. Amy and I were talking about it this weekend. We were trying to remember, like, what, what was going on? What were some of the concerns about that? And, and she, uh, one of her concerns was uh, all of the effort that sometimes it takes to invest in people who, who don't like you <laughs> or, or, the, uh, or, or the fear of just inviting people who, over who have something against you. Well, last summer, Amy picked up uh, the book, by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. A really great book, really recommend it. has a lot to take away from it. And it was just fun to see how that really energized her to start connecting with neighbors in, in some new and fresh ways. I think her excitement was so, so much that she almost got tired with her own excitement about it at times. Um, but it was fun to really see that uh, take root in, in a very special way. In the book, in the book uh, Butterfield recounts a time when they decided as a family to invite a student who was finishing their master's thesis to come and live with them. She said that she remembered how difficult it was during that time, and, and she just felt compassion. And she figured, look, we're already cooking meals. We're already doing laundry. What's one more on top of what's one more on top of the pile? Butterfield's house is it's always open. It's where life happens. 
And whenever the fear comes up in her that uh, we're not going to have enough food, she just tells herself that, that we give what we have and we don't give what we don't have. It's as simple as that. Well, there's a phrase from the Apostle Paul that I've uh, taken from our TechWise class that I've just seen it with, with new eyes. And it's the life that is truly life. It comes from the letter of First Timothy. The life that is truly life. Some of us have tasted it. Others of us long for it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about it. It's still out there. And it's out there for the taking. It's something that we can have. And whenever fears of acceptance may hold us back, there is a way forward knowing that God accepts us and that we can take that acceptance into whatever risky place that we might enter. Embracing life-giving hospitality is a chance to serve the God whose love we don't have to earn, whose love that we don't have to earn. It will draw us closer to him, and it will open up opportunities to experience life as it was meant to be. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you first and foremost that even though we were inhospitable, you extended your hospitality to us. You welcomed us in. You made a table for us to come and feast in your presence, Lord. I pray that as we reflect upon that truth, as we chew on and, and digest that reality, God, that that we would experience more of your love so that we can take that love into other places no matter whether people will love us back or not. May we be representations of your love, your grace, your hospitality to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.